Hello and welcome to the Silver King's War. I'm Michael Sievers, the writer, producer, and creator of this podcast series about my father's Second World War as a B-26 bombardier. Today we continue in the review of Stanley's War. It's January 1943, and the Silver King's War is about to begin as he rides a train from Birmingham, Alabama to Nashville, Tennessee in the second week of January. He's on his way to the training headquarters of the Army Air Corps. Stanley wrote a letter to his parents on January 13th, 1943, from Nashville. Dear Mother and Dad, Today was the beginning of either the end or a wonderful future. This afternoon, I had the first part of my physical exam. The second and final part will come tomorrow sometime. Naturally, I'm very nervous, for God knows everything depends on the outcome. If I'm lucky, I'll be classified as a pilot, navigator, or bombardier. If I'm not lucky, I'll be washed out. This means, I guess, I'll be made a private in the ground crew. Therefore, you can understand how important it is to me. Tomorrow, this time, as I write you, I'll either be a very happy fellow or a very disappointed buck private. Stanley received his pilot classification notice on January 20th, 1943, after nine days of fitness and education tests at the Army Air Force's Classification Center. He was excited over the moon and wrote about how his next stop would be pre-flight school at Maxwell Field in Montgomery, Alabama. 800 men, including the Silver King, who were potential pilots, traveled from the classification center to Maxwell Field, and over nine weeks, their readiness would be determined by their testing regime. Stanley's scores had him flying high as he was preparing to leave Maxwell Field for a train ride and an arrival in Lakeland, Florida at the Ludwig School of Aeronautics. Stanley would be a student pilot at the Ludwig School, which was part of the 60th Army Air Force Flying Training Detachment in Lakeland, Florida. The Ludwig School was a new private facility that was under Army Air Force's contract because the demand to fly four- and two-engine bombers was beyond the Air Corps' internal training capacity. The early pilot training washout rate was high at 75%. Stanley was ready for the work. As he wrote to his family on Sunday, April 4, 1943, Dearest ones, I am in God's country, and I do mean God's country. If anyone had told me the army would be like this, or if a place like this even existed, I would have called them a liar. It is absolutely a paradise, but that's just putting it mildly. I don't know how to begin to describe it to you. It would be impossible to really paint you a picture in words. You'd have to see it to really appreciate it, and then you wouldn't believe your eyes. I'm going to try as best as I know how to tell you about this heaven on earth. 
While Stanley was in pilot school in Lakeland, Florida, within miles, his unit was under activation at the Army Air Base MacDill Field in Tampa, Florida. Stanley's squadron, the 597th, resided within the bombardment group for the 397th inside the 9th Bomber Command. The history of Stanley's unit activation was part of his historical unit's record that I explored and reviewed in my research to prepare for the Silver King's War podcast. The activation description reads, Theoretically, the squadron came into existence on April 20th, 1943, by virtue of General Orders Number 28 at Headquarters, Army Air Base, McDill Field, Tampa, Florida. This general order, dated April 1st of 1943, activated at headquarters for the 397th Bombardment Group and the 596, 597, 598, and 599 Bombardment Squadrons. With MacDill Field as the station of activation, these five units were assigned to the 3rd Bomber Command and from sources thereunder, the squadron was to receive its cadre, fillers, and replacements. In organizing the squadron, Technical Order 1-127, on 1 July 1942, was to be used as a guide, and the unit was to be equipped in accordance with the technical guidance. It continues... Actually, however, life for the squadron did not really begin until May 10, 1943, and this was due to the issuance of General Orders Number 39 at Headquarters, Air Base Area Command, MacDill Field, dated May 12, 1943, which reorganized the group and squadrons effective May 10, 1943. This reorganization did not affect the assignment nor the station, but another technical order was given as a guide for the reorganization. This new order provided that the commanding officer, be a lieutenant colonel, established the office of squadron executive officer with the rank of major, eliminated all other officers in the squadron headquarters except an adjutant with the rank of captain, and authorized the rank of major and captain for the operations and armament officers respectively. On May 12th, a cadre of eight officers and 36 enlisted men reported for duty. Captain Raymond J. Berger assumed command effective May 10th. Most of the cadre came from the 314 Bomb Squadron, of which Captain Berger had been CO. One of the units of the 21st Bombardment Group, famous for its record at MacDill, as an operational training unit in B-26 aircraft. A few days later, the cadre was further implemented by the arrival of a number of enlisted men from Eglant Field, which increased the squadron strength to 22 officers and 104 enlisted men by May 31, 1943. Over the two-month course of activation, paperwork, and squadron formation, the Silver King, who had arrived at pilot school in early April of 1943, 
had washed out of school by the end of the month. And by the end of May of 1943, he was preparing to leave Nashville after his return there and his washout of pilot school for a long train ride to the West Coast to an Army air base in Santa Ana, California. Stanley rode a troop train over five days and nights from Nashville, Tennessee, to the Santa Ana Army Air Base in early June of 1943. And there, over time, he saw Joe DiMaggio, rented convertibles, made the Biltmore Hotel his personal headquarters, and shipped to gunnery school in Las Vegas, Nevada, in the hot summer of 1943. As Stanley began gunnery and gambling school in Las Vegas, the Allies were about to invade Sicily over a number of weeks in the summer of 1943. The plan for Operation Husky, which began on July 9th, called for the amphibious assault of Sicily by two Allied armies, one landing on the southeastern and one on the central southern coast. The amphibious assaults were to be supported by naval gunfire as well as tactical bombing, interdiction, and close air support by the combined air forces. As such, the operation required a complex command structure which incorporated land, navy, and air forces. The overall commander was the American General Dwight David Eisenhower, who was the commander-in-chief of all the Allied forces in North Africa. British General Sir Harold Alexander acted as his second-in-command and as the 15th Army Group commander. The American Major General Walter Bedell Smith was appointed as Eisenhower's chief of staff and the overall naval force commander was the British Admiral Sir Andrew Cunningham. The Allied land forces were from the American, British, and Canadian armies and were structured as two task forces. The Eastern Task Force, also known as Task Force 545, was led by General Sir Bernard Montgomery and consisted of the British 8th Army, which included the 1st Canadian Infantry Division. The Western Task Force, known as Task Force 343, was commanded by Lieutenant General George S. Patton and consisted of the American 7th Army. The task force commanders reported to Alexander as commander of the 15th Army Group. The U.S. 7th Army consisted initially of three infantry divisions organized under the two corps, commanded by Lieutenant General Omar Bradley. The 1st and 3rd Infantry Divisions, commanded by Major Generals Terry Allen and Lucian Truscott, respectively, sailed from ports in Tunisia as the 45th Infantry Division, under Major General Troy H. Middleton, sailed from the United States via Oran in Algeria. At the time of Operation Husky, the Allied Air Forces in North Africa and the Mediterranean were organized into the Mediterranean Air Command, the MAC, 
under Air Chief Marshal Sir Arthur Tedder. The major subcommand of MAC was the Northwest African Air Forces under the command of Lieutenant General Carl Spatz with headquarters in Tunisia. The Northwest African Air Forces consisted primarily of groups from the United States 12th Air Force, 9th Air Force, and the British Royal Air Force, the RAF, that provided the primary air support for the operation. Other groups from the 9th Air Force under Lieutenant General Louis H. Brereton were operating from Tunisia and Egypt and the air headquarters in Malta under the Air Vice Marshal Sir Keith Park were operating from the island of Malta, also providing important air support. The U.S. Army Air Force, 9th Air Force's medium bombers and P-40 fighters that were detached to the Northwest African Tactical Air Force under the command of Air Marshal Sir Arthur Cunningham moved to the southern airfields in Sicily as soon as they were secured. The Sicilian campaign led by Operation Husky was a success and an allied victory deep in that summer of 1943. And this hard work, which included almost half a million men, 600 tanks, 14,000 vehicles, and close coordination of all the Allied forces, meant the demise of the Mussolini reign in Italy. The victorious Allies were on the move in the middle of 1943. And what they accomplished was almost one year ahead of Operation D-Day in June of 1944. As the Allies moved north through Italy, Stanley was hard at work in gunnery school in the desert of Las Vegas. It was searingly hot, but our hero, the Silver King, enjoyed the work and he also enjoyed the trips from the base to the original strip and the early casinos in Las Vegas. The king loved to gamble, and sometimes he was a winner. Stanley's summer ended with the arrival at Bomber School in Carlsbad, New Mexico, in September of 1943. Stanley's Bomber School class, 44 Dash one was the first triple threat cadet group. They were gunners, bombers, and navigators. And of course, each cadet before their second lieutenant commission completed a last will and testament. The king wrote his will on January 14th of 1944, with his possessions going to his father, Milton Silverfield. Stanley's training meant missions and drills and scores, lots of night work on big planes and hours of trying to hit the shack. He loved his job, sitting in the blister, bomber nose, and all of that became a three-step mantra to arm, aim, and toggle. 300 miles north of bomber school in Carlsbad, in the secretive Pecos River Valley, near the Rio Grande River, the American Army had purchased the Los Alamos Ranch School for Boys in November of 1942. 
Robert Oppenheimer and Leslie Groves led the Manhattan District Project based in New York City, which President Franklin Delano Roosevelt announced in August of 1942. The site address, Site Y, Post Office Box 1663, Santa Fe, New Mexico. America began its atomic weapons development late and entered a frantic race against the Axis powers led by Germany. Over months in 1939, scientists at Columbia University in New York City met with federal experts about their concerns in atomic energy research. In July of 39, physicists Leo Szilard, Eugene Widner, and Albert Einstein wrote a letter to the president and arranged for its October delivery to the Roosevelt advisor, Alexander Sachs. Ten days after that letter, the president appointed an advisory committee on uranium. And more than two years later, through frustrating and difficult negotiations, the scientists saw the nation's government focus on the issue. FDR's people were ready to do business. And on December 6th of 1941, Vanover Bush, the director of the Federal Office of Scientific Research and Development, announced that America would commit to comprehensive atomic energy research. The nation entered World War II on December 8th, 1941. While the Silver King trained hard in the cold, high desert, President Franklin Roosevelt, England's Prime Minister Winston Churchill, and Russia's Joseph Stalin prepared for a secret summit known as the Tehran Conference in the Russian Embassy during late November of 1943. That meeting was looking ahead to what a post-war Europe might be. During Stanley's bomber school, his soon-to-be plane, the famous B-26, was under investigation by the federal government. And on October 2nd of 1943, the House of Representatives wrote a letter to Martin Manufacturing addressed to their general counsel. Dear Mr. Mosher, I have been directed to obtain and herewith respectfully request from you for the use of the committee a report in detail of the history of the Martin Bomber, the B-26, as far as your records show, to include its record of performance. Its maneuverability, susceptibility to handling, especially in relation to the extent of the pilot's training, experience, and ability, its accomplishments from the combat angle, its accident record as is known to you and causes, and simply generalized in the event you do not have statistics. Anything you can give touching upon the length and character of instruction as related to the accidents which have occurred, comparison in this regard with other planes, its value as a war instrument as related to other planes, and such other information and data as may be useful reflecting an overall view of this particular plane in the war effort. Very truly yours, H. Ralph Burton, General Counsel. As Congress investigated the Martin Marauder, Stanley was deep into his training to become a commissioned officer and eventually ride in the nose of a B-26 in the greenhouse. And as his training concluded, 
he received a notification from the headquarters of the Army Air Forces Bombardier School from the Office of Provisional Aviation Cadet Detachment at Carlsbad Army Airfield, New Mexico. The subject was a recommendation for his Good Conduct Medal, and it was addressed to the Commandant of the airfield in Carlsbad, stating that Stanley L. Silverfield, 14103064, the Air Cadet, is recommended for the award of the Good Conduct Medal. This soldier has completed one year of continuous active federal military service since 7 December 1941. During that time, he has demonstrated exemplary behavior, efficiency, and fidelity, and has not been convicted of a court-martial. His character and efficiency are not rated below excellent. Signed, Donald A. Lynn, Captain, Air Corps, Commandant of Cadets. Dated December 29th of 1943. The cadet is approved and the soldier is authorized to purchase and wear the Good Conduct Medal. Signed, Stephen Sukhausevich, Major Air Corps, and entered in the service record on 12-29-43 by Ralph F. Ives, Jr., First Lieutenant Air Corps Adjutant. As Stanley receives his last piece of paperwork for 1943 and is permitted to purchase and wear his good conduct medal. We have reached the end of this episode of the review of Stanley's War. And you are listening to The Silver King's War.